0: I think when you learn that, um, I think you're on your way uh, to be able to, um, I think, see yourself and see your opportunities as limitless. And I think that's what's important because it's not, it's not like you just mentioned, it's not the milestones. You can do those milestones, but not, but not be able to kind of, that doesn't necessarily build you, but it's, it's, you know, that kind of um, greater confidence in yourself um, that takes you that extra mile that, potentially won't take the other person.
1: My name is Innocent Mugenga, and you're listening to the Learnability Podcast. I'm truly excited about today's episode as we're speaking to Claudia Adler, who's uh, currently doing her PhD research at York University where she aims to critically examine what we call education and how we might build a more empowering education. So let's jump right into it. Claudia, would you mind sharing uh, some background on your research and your current work?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. So at the moment I'm doing a PhD at the University of York at the Department of Health Sciences. And the focus of my research is on education that is empowering, so the title is Beyond Schools and Jobs, How Education Can Empower Women and Girls to Become. Because education has been such a pivotal point in, in my life um, that I wanted to understand more how education can really help and empower women and girls from a marginalized context. The focus of, of the research is to be able to critically examine the pedagogical approaches which empower women and girls. And I'll sort of rephrase that in a way that's, that's a little bit more kind of simple to understand and you know the the way we consume information the way that we learn doesn't necessarily have to come from the classroom and it doesn't necessarily mean that children in a classroom or informal or mainstream education are learning or are becoming empowered which we should say that education that that should be the purpose of education right
1: yes exactly I was able to read a little bit into your paper or your paper so far, and it's really about the impact. Then people who have listened to this podcast previously know that I was obviously amazed by the work you're doing. Thank you. What would you say is like ultimately the goal with this research?
0: The ultimate goal of this research is to be able to sway policy when it comes to writing out uh, curriculums, for example, and, and more importantly, to be able to have like a methodological framework, which is to be able to have a roadmap on where we say, here is evidence to say that if we teach in this way, or if we have this kind of uh, learning, you'll be able to have this kind of a result. So that is, that is uh, the, the sort of outcome.
1: And I find it really interesting uh, because when you explore um, education and learning, um, some people get really worried or stressed out about it being so experimental. Where I would like to say we are running a current experiment, which we know works for parts of the society. So why wouldn't we run more experiments to find a more complete or several more complete solutions.
0: Yes, that's that's a really, really important point. And you're right. Uh, I, think, I think some of the issues that we find is that people are so set in that school has to look like a certain form. And that form is very much of a sort of Western ideal of what school should be. Um, but something that I've sort of really um, taken home is the fact that our current mainstream education works on a deficit of knowledge. By that I mean is the children or women that enter education, school assumes that they know nothing. School does not build from what we already know. And by that I mean uh, non-formal and informal learning. We learn so much outside of school, but that's not taken account when when we walk into that classroom.
1: In the context of Western educational systems being applied in different cultures, which is a huge part of your research, could you tell us more about that?
0: It is. Um, for example, if you read Walter Rodney, um, he he writes about education in Africa, and he talks about the kind of universities uh, like Timbuktu in Mali, the universities in Egypt, uh, you know pre pre-colonial time, uh, where they were the epicenter of knowledge. Now there are still 700,000 manuscripts which have been found and are being sort of translated, but we disregard that. And with uh, colonialism, they've imposed a level or a system of education which was really only there to oppress. And that's what we still see now. And that's what we see in not just Africa, but in Latin America. We also see that same system of, of class that doesn't actually help the student or the individual be able to to really come out and, and learn vital skills for to become independent or to become entrepreneurs. It doesn't fuel creativity.
1: We're stuck with a lot of uh, systems that we've inherited from colonialism. While there are a lot of great opportunities if we're looking into the future just to frog leap into a more suitable future and more adapted future, for the continent and also maybe in that way could inspire the world. Just running a, a Western program all over the world will not be the most innovative way to go about it. Instead, if we have different systems running around the world, we can be inspired and, and learn from each other.
0: Yes, exactly. I mean I couldn't I couldn't agree more. You know, and just just to throw out a couple of statistics to put things into context. There are, you know, um, from sort of UNESCO data, there are 258 million children and youth which are out of school. Um, and from that, you have 59 million of primary school age, and it begins to increase. And then you have 62 million um, from that initial number, 62 million of those from lower secondary school, and it increases to 138 million from upper secondary age. So that's the divide. So the total number at, at 258. And then you've got the 59 million of primary school age, the 62 million at lower and 138 million at upper secondary school. And we find that there's a lot more girls, which are affected within the lower secondary school and middle upper secondary school dropouts. A lot of those are girls. And that's when they begin to hit, um, adolescent and you have, you know, um, things like child marriage and you have period poverty that begin to really impact, um, girls learning and education.
1: And this is measurements of kids being out of school. So this is out of a physical building called school. But they necessarily wouldn't need to be out of learning.
0: That's exactly it. But the only problem is the monopoly that there is with formal education and the lack of recognition for other non-formal um, education approaches, which could be able to actually facilitate the learning of, of these children. Um, so that's where I think technology, um, can, can make a massive impact.
1: How long into this research would you say you are?
0: Approaching halfway.
1: Approaching halfway. And what are some of your key findings building on what we've been speaking on so far?
0: Well, I think, I think if we're looking at sort of some of the initial key findings, I have to look at it in the context of where I started, and I think where we start a lot is, is sort of our presumption that um, mainstream education or formal education is, is the savior or it's, it, it's the only way uh, to be able to get ahead. And that's where I began. Um, and I think that's kind of a common, you know, notion. If, if you, if you talk about, you know, children out of school, you, you know, you're horrified and unfortunately we don't really think that there's an alternative. Um, but some of the, the, the kind of like stronger findings that that we've come across is the importance of having like supportive bonds within education. So the impact that teachers actually make on children when when they support them and when they believe in them and when they're encouraging, Um, the kind of impact that children have when when they find uh, strong bonds within their classmates, that provides the kind of confidence for them to go in and try different things and also develop entrepreneurial skills. Now, I think you have to ask yourself, what is the purpose of education? We don't really think about that, right, Innocent? Because we go in and we think, um, you know, what exams do I have to pass? You know, this is a certificate that I've had, you know, but we don't actually um, hold learning accountable. We don't go to our teachers and say, what has my child learnt? As opposed to, has he passed an exam or not?
1: Do you have a definition there? Like, what is the purpose of learning? Spontaneously, I'm thinking about opportunities. Yes. Opportunities to create something of value for other people.
0: Yes, exactly. Um, I very much use the framework of Amartya Sen, which talks about capabilities and freedoms. So I believe that education should be something that expands the freedom of people. And by that, it, it should allow that person to develop those skills to be able to live a healthy and independent
1: life. I'm starting to think now about the connection to our current educational system and industrialism and the need of education in those times and the lack of innovation or the um, legacy structures that we're we're still in today, not reflecting a newer world we're living in today.
0: Yes, of course. Um, For example, I mean, that falls into sort of the purpose, right? So uh, very much the education system that we have now is geared uh, to ensure that, that children fulfill uh, or as as young adults, they end up fulfilling an economic purpose, but not really a personal development purpose. So that's why the focus of the research is to to understand what it means to become, you know, where, where is your potential as a person, um, as opposed to what is your contr- contribution to, to, to an economic workforce.
1: Because... Most likely you can have both an individual pursuit aligned with uh, society and an organization may be the closest.
0: Exactly. But I would argue that if you focus on uh, the expansion of the person, they will be able to, um, they'll be able to contribute a lot more uh, money to society because they are happier and probably better at what they do.
1: Yes. And this gets me to thinking about like the future of work we we've done episodes previously on what's currently called the gig economy but what i have come to uh, thanks to the conversation we had with Alok allstrom think will just be called work in the future where it's more gig economy like where we have the structures to support people in this and also we have uh, a flexibility and uh, an opportunity to exchange Expertise or exchange services in a simpler way,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, person to person, company to company. Uh, looking at that type of future, that would really enhance the the probability of us being able to work on ourselves, add value for ourselves, and find where we can share that value.
0: Uh, yes, absolutely.
1: Is that something you've looked into, like the future of work and what we currently call gig economy and how that might develop in the African continent or Latin American continent.
0: I mean, it, I think it's all very much connected. Um, but where sort of I I tend to focus on is is sort of being able to have that continuity within sort of learning and development. And I think that's a little bit kind of like what you're getting into, but um, not not necessarily looking at education in you know as we see it now, you know, primary. Um, secondary and tertiary education and then we're kind of much done but being able to kind of look at more of a of a kind of lifelong cycle and life-wide cycle of learning and again that can be adapted to uh, you know uh, the economy and the way that we work and in, in, in kind of being able to look at it differently um, and our contribution uh, to society
1: But starting with the individual
0: Yes I believe that it should be like a child-centered pedagogy um, as opposed to teacher centered, I think that if we pay more attention to sort of, um, and you know, it's not just children because adults should be able to go into education and dip in and out. Um, but if we're talking about children, it should be very much child centered on, you know, where you're seeing their creativity spark as opposed to having like a set curriculum that everyone has to learn. Um, so there's, there's so, so much that you can really sort of begin to, um, to explore with education and it doesn't need to be as rigid as, as what we've made it.
1: I love it. And I've been, I got exposed to a concept about living in the future. It's about some individuals, many times entrepreneurs or innovators uh, living in a certain future and trying to bring the world to that future. And I, I feel like we're living in a similar future. We are seeing a beautiful future where Uh, people, the individual is more empowered and society gains from that. And there's so many, we're doing what we can to hopefully accelerate us into this future, but there's so many factors and so many hurdles to overcome. What would you say are the main limiting factors, if you would list just a few of them?
0: I think it's sort of policy policy. Um, I think policy is something that needs to be shifted and you can do that through, you know, advocacy and you can do that through research. And that's why, um, you know, I'm focused where I am, because if we have a a certain system which imposes um, the acceptance and and only credits one type of education and discredits the other. um, I, I think that's that's also kind of perpetuates inequality and the kind of inequality that we see now. Um, so we don't really assess people on what they know, but we assess them on uh, the kind of certificates that they have, um, and I think that's
1: that's a mistake. And why is policy geared in this way today? I normally shuck it down to legacy. W- what would you say is the reasons why we're so limited in 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 these policies? I,
0: I think it's reflective of how limited um, the kind of political representation that that we have. There is a massive lack of diversity within um, our political structures and system, and it's one which lags behind um, all other sort of development um, and that includes um, the lack of female participation um, within within politics and you know whenever there is a lack of uh, female participation, we also if we dig in deeper, there will be a massive lack of ethnic and racial uh, diversity within those
1: structures mm. That makes a whole lot of sense. Who are the major stakeholders in this question on a policy level uh, looking at education globally?
0: So when we look at education globally, we'll find sort of international development um, agents like the UN, like the World Bank, like UNICEF, who set out um, agendas like our uh, sustainable development goals for 2030 and before that we had our millennium development goals as well. Um, So they are the, the main kind of like, they push out the agenda and then you have national governments, which then try and implement um, those goals um, and those policies um, internally. So those are, the main, those are the main stakeholders.
1: I've actually looked into the, the sustainable development goals and specifically uh, the ones for education. I wanted to ask you, how, do you, how innovative do you experience them? Um, innovative future oriented
0: I mean the difficulty with with the goals is that they are broad and I think these goals in comparison to the millennium uh, goals where you find that they're a lot more specific to female empowerment which is a positive thing and you know you have issues or direct issues like child marriage and uh, female genital mutilation which has um, you know which now appears as as massive issues um, and rightly so Uh, but unfortunately what you find is that they, they prescribe empowerment. So they don't really discuss empowerment from a bottom up approach, but it's more from a top down. And I think that's where you have an issue where you're, you're not allowed. There isn't authenticity, uh, with regards to empowerment. Empowerment must come from within that person and it has to be, um, what I understand for it to be is more of a realization of who you are and your circumstances. And then it's that wanting to change those circumstances. And that is real empowerment. Nobody can give you empowerment.
1: That's really well said. One point that I have had on the development goals is I see us having a hard time achieving them when it comes to education. If we're assuming that education and the progress of education is building more amounts of a physical buildings and locations, which we call schools and applying that everywhere. If we have that rigid view, I I, I think we're missing an opportunity, like I said before, to frog leap to a better adapted so- solution to rural areas in Africa or uh, different um, hindering factors that might not allow these countries to go about building the educational infrastructure in the same way we do here in Stockholm, for example. Um, so that's one, just one point I've been thinking about when it comes to the development goals. But you're speaking here about the top-down and uh, bottom-up approach. Could you elaborate more on that?
0: Yes, of course. So, for example, um, you, you have hundreds of thousands of uh, programs, say, headed up by the World Bank or headed up by, uh, you know, UN Women, uh, which, which are there to help women um, become empowered, right? Uh, be that they are providing mini loans for uh, women within women agriculture. Um, you know, they have, they, ha- they have, you know, there are many programs. The, the issue with those programs is that the focus is more about the UN giving empowerment to women as opposed to allowing women to be able to empower themselves. And empowerment isn't something that I, I can't give you that. That's something that that's, that's a, a moment which you have with yourself. It's a moment of reckoning where. I, Claudia, want to be in a certain place or I, Claudia, I'm unhappy with this situation or, or I want to send my child to school and my husband doesn't let me and I take on that decision to be able to change my family circumstances. I become empowered by that realization. You can facilitate it, but you can't give it.
1: Mm. It reminds me of the difference between being able to inspire someone but not being able to motivate someone and motivation comes from within intrinsic motivation.
0: That's exactly it. And you won't be able to have long lasting change. I mean, you can only really change yourself and we all know that. Uh, But the thing is any program which has the word women and empowerment and development and well-being, those programs generate money. Um, So unfortunately, you know, I see it a little bit as sort of taking advantage of like a, a massive potential um, that these organizations have uh, to be able to, to really kind of like fix the status quo. Like we said, you know, there is a problem with just building more and more schools because we understand that girls, for example, have a safety issue. You know, some schools are really far. They have to to walk over an hour to be able to get to school. Um, it's unsafe. Um, also, they, they have the problem with, uh, you know, uh, period poverty as well. So, why not be able to develop uh, systems uh, where they are able to learn and consume information in a different way?
1: Yes. And these programs are, of course, better than nothing. The same way inspiration is better than nothing at all. But the, the, what we're really after, like you started about asking the real question, what is learning and education about is the impact, is the, the, that we're actually creating real sustainable change
0: exactly and I, I think that draws back to the point on what is the purpose of and we you know we don't ask uh, ourselves that enough what is the purpose of education what is the purpose of these programs um, and then we, we won't be in a situation where we are at the moment where we're settling for one thing is better than nothing but really what is our end goal
1: where should we place our resources? Speaking about that, what will you be focusing on moving forward with this research? You said you're halfway through?
0: Yes, I'm about halfway through. So um, towards the end of this year, we'll, we'll kind of become really exciting because we'll be able to start doing our field research. Um, now with COVID-19, we're looking at a couple of different ideas in case travel um, you know, doesn't allow us. But the whole point of, of this research is to really be able to understand um, education and empowerment from the women themselves as opposed to from any other source and you know kind of going back to that some of the um research that I've already engaged with you know when women talk about empowerment they actually see it as being able to help their families or being able to be role models within communities being able to make decisions for 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 their own lives being able to be accepted and to be able to uh, present arguments which their families accept. All of those issues, all of those points which I've raised, are things that women deem empowering, and that's not necessarily what you would think is empowering.
1: You were speaking in the beginning of this uh, conversation about how you came to how you came into this question and how you came how education has been important to you. Could you tell us a little bit about your journey and? and how you came to understand these questions. Yes,
0: no, of course. So um, originally I'm born in Colombia. Um, my mother is one of 11. Um, she was born in, well, I was born in the 80s when you had a lot of violence in Colombia. And uh, she came from a very back, uh, very poor uh, background. Um, and that, uh, you know, with a lot of other things were what motivated her to leave Colombia in search of, um a better life and she immigrated on her own because she was able to bring me along. So I stayed in Colombia for a year and a half. Um and when I came to England, um I found it quite difficult just because we were, you know, two females, um, my mum without any form of
1: this is in the
0: This is, yeah. So I was born in eighty two. Um, and my mom, uh, came to London, um, three and a half years after I was born.
1: Wow. Different times.
0: Yeah, di- completely different times. And, you know, we had no support network, um, and we run a lot of, uh, challenges and, and also, you know, safety issues. You know, my mom was exploited at work and, uh, she cleaned, uh, for years and years and years because she didn't have that confidence to think that she could do anything more and that's that's where we're talking about the importance to be able to have those uh bonds and teachers and uh, you know classmates that actually root for you and 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 see that potential in you and she didn't have that you know she came from a father that was abusive and uh, my father then left her um and and so the the kind of frames that she had was very much one of survival and, and that kind of stayed with us for a very long time, uh, because we're illegal in, in the UK. We overstayed our, our, our visas, you know. So where I really began to sort of understand, uh, the potential of education was further on in, in my life, because I began to see that as, um, a way to be able to secure a better life for me and for my son. And, now I've, I've, you know, I've learned to learn. And I think that's something that's really important. And We don't learn to learn in school. You learn to pass an exam and you learn to, um, you know, assimilate a whole bunch of information that then becomes very useless uh, to you. Um, so it really became more of an issue where I saw education with a purpose. And we need to ensure that our students see education with a purpose, be whatever it is. Um, so after I've done, you know, after I, I completed my law degree, um, that then sort of gave me a different sort of sense of understanding and I, I began to see, you know, options for myself which were different. Um, when I engaged in my masters, again I began to see options for my life which were different. And in my PhD it's been absolutely remarkable because the teaching is not like what you have in a classroom. I mean, I have supervisors, I don't have teachers. I do independent learning. I've learned to engage with books. I've learned to, um, to be able to follow, um, you know, great thinkers um, and appreciate literature in a way which I didn't before, where it was before, you know, if you would have said to me, you know, Claudia, you have to read, you know, 20, 30 books in this amount of time. I would see it as a chore. Now I see it as a massive privilege and development for myself. So that kind of like shift in my learning it, you know, as I said, it's 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 kind of more those um, unsaid notions, which are the ones that are able to kind of uh, change your focus. And I think that's that's key. There, it's not the task; it's not that I've read x amount of books that have me where I am. It's the fact that I see, and the way I engage with things is very different.
1: It sounds like you're really working or learning with full autonomy now the support of mentors and some frameworks, but you're not judged by incremental steps or tests along the way, it's the result you produce. And that has been my educational journey as well with self-education. The only result is actually accelerating my career for real, creating value and, and that's the way I've been rewarded for my learning efforts. Um, and that incentivized me to actually learn for myself.
0: Exactly. So I think, I think when you learn that, um, I think you're on your way, uh, to be able to, um, I think see yourself and see your opportunities as limitless. And I think that's, what's yes. important because it's not, it's not that like you just mentioned, it's not the milestones. You can do those milestones, but not, but not be able to kind of, that doesn't necessarily build you, but it's, it's, you know, that kind of um, greater confidence in yourself um, that takes you that extra mile that potentially won't take the other person.
1: Something that I've been thinking about a lot and and you illustrated it when describing uh, your mother's journey to uh, London. And I think about that in Stockholm, if you want to talk about kids growing up in the suburbs or in general, just thinking about like networks and your opportunity. And something that I really want to work for is enabling us to widen our network outside of our closest proximity, outside of our family, closest family, and creating opportunities to connect with someone who can inspire you to another career or inspire you. I think exposure really is a huge thing that we need to enable, exposure to different opportunities. Absolutely. So you can make informed decisions.
0: Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, uh, you know, that's why I think education plays a really important role. And it's not, it's it's more so exposure to, to role models. I think, I think that's the key. And being able to kind of understand that there are people that look like you, come from places where you come from, speak your language and have made it or are taking a different journey or a different path, and I think, you know, that's I work with uh, the British Latino Network in the UK, where I mentor um, students uh, who are kind of coming up the ranks and need that because I didn't have that visibility when I grew up. My visibility were women that cleaned houses. I grew up in houses where my family cleaned. That was that was my base. So if, if you if you take it from you know Claudia who was small, that is that is what I saw as what I could what I could achieve. That's what I saw.
1: You've truly made a fantastic journey coming from that. And where do you see yourself um, after this um, uh, work that you're doing now?
0: You know, it's, its well, I don't, I don't think there's kind of like necessarily a, a clear path, but I do know that I have a couple of books within me. Um, you yes. know, some titles, which I think I'd love to during you know, my lifetime, be able to, to kind of write about. Um, so that's some, those are projects that I see, for example. And I just, I think with time, I think doors open that you don't necessarily expect, um, to open. And so I'm very much, you know, I have what's set, which is sort of my, my PhD, but I'm very much, I go with the flow on things that feel right to me.
1: I'm personally, this is a a selfish (laughs) purpose. Uh, hoping we get the opportunity to collaborate a lot more in the future.
0: Yeah, that would be fantastic.
1: How does one best collaborate with you or how can one contribute if they find your work interesting?
0: So um, we have um, the Wing Summit Awards, which um, I launched in 2019 with Ellen Birke-Hogg, Um And that's under my company named Raices Limited. Um, and the whole purpose of that was be able to create those role models and those visible role models and tell those stories. Um, and at the summit, we invited um, we invited schools to be able to attend, uh, to be able to have those experiences. So I think um, from that point, we are looking at um, you know post COVID nineteen, um, we're looking at being able to have that again in uh, next year um, and and create that kind of yeah that kind of environment. Um, but I think more so where, where I'm kind of like positioning myself is there are, you know, tons of organizations and I'm more than happy to go in and, you know, provide lectures and also just provide kind of mentorship and support and be able to give that kind of academic foundation to ideas, which can, can, can be the kind of like living essence of the writing.
1: (laughs) Yes. Let it play out in, in real life. And, Affect bottom up as well as uh, top down. Exactly. Simultaneously. <laughs> so, we've been speaking about learning all through this uh, episode. And I've had these recurring questions uh, mostly in the beginning of the podcast, but they f- seem really relevant here. So, let me ask a few of them. Um, what is your best hack for learning?
0: that's a really interesting that's a really interesting one and a lot of people kind of when when they sort of get to know myself and and you know my particular set of circumstances a lot of people ask me you know how do you get the time how you know how, how did you do a masters um having a baby and being pregnant and, you know a whole bunch of things that they'll you know that they'll, they'll sort of ask me and one thing is i've learned to I don't have that much time and people think that you need a a whole bunch of time to do a PhD and stuff. You do need that. You need dedication. But more than anything, my advice is consistency. So I work consistently every day for three hours, as in quality work. I produce quality work for three hours every day. And it's not a lot because if you think that people are sat in an office from nine to five all you need is three hours of like quality work where you're not up getting a coffee or checking your email or, you know, checking your social media, but you're really focused. And that's been able to take me through and uh, produce the milestones that you need to in order to sort of achieve certain things.
1: I can totally see that. And it falls into a th- theory that um, Malcolm Larry, a previous podcast guest had about us having, I think it was speaking about four or five productive hours a day tops. Yeah. And it also maybe plays into the 80-20 rule So
0: the parade, 80% yeah, of your... Yeah, p- Pareto law.
1: Exactly. So you're getting the best result out of those three effective hours.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And then you have more quality time for everything else. And if you if you think about it, you're like, right, okay, today, all I really have to do is this amount. And then I've got you know, a whole bunch of the day to do other things. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't seem like a lot, but then when you add it up, you've done everything that you need to do and and you're doing it.
1: And it accumulates over time. It
0: does, it does.
1: <laughs> and you were speaking about uh, writing a book. So let me ask this question. If you were to write a book that would be read by all young adults in the world, what would be the title and subtitle of that book?
0: Crumbs. Um, not sure about the title and subtitle, but... But if I were to write a book, I think my first book would be um, on the story of my family. And for me, potentially the title would be A Modern Day Moses, um, because my mum represents, or in my eyes, she represents, uh, you know, for those that are familiar with the story of Moses um, from the Bible, my mum represents that story of Moses, where she was able to bring all of her family out of Colombia, um, out of what was such a dangerous and, and, you know, violent, um, set of circumstances, she brought each and every single one of them out. Um, so yeah, (laughs) I think that would be it.
1: (laughs) Please write this book. (laughs) (laughs) I will do. So finally, Claudia, I want to ask you, what are you eager to learn within the near future?
0: So one of the things which I'm really, um, excited to learn about the near future are more so indigenous practices, so ancient, um, ancient knowledge. By that, <clears throat> what I mean is um, you know, my heritage is that of sort of native Indians, native Indians from South America. And we have we have a monopoly on what we think um is education, and our relationship with our world and our land and each other isn't necessarily the most healthiest, and we can see that. It's a it's an example. We can see you know the climate crisis, for example, we can see um, you know our plastic pollution um, and they had it right and it's not just sort of native native South Americans but also uh, within Africa, you know like that that kind of like uh native pedagogy and um, that I talked about right at the beginning. I'm really interested in being able to sort of extract um, those learnings and those teachings and be able to kind of position those on a platform uh, because we need to go back to our roots, I think. And we should definitely um, have some form of a recognition um, for ancient knowledge.
1: You made me realize that I'm also very interested in learning more about this. So I probably will be diving into more about this. um, What I'm hearing or what I'm imagining is an opportunity to learn more about more nurturing natures in terms of uh, the individual and the planet in large exactly you A know more nurturing way exact, of going about things.
0: exactly you know the the you know their interactions their systems for example you know we we and i'll just sort of cut this shortly but when we look at uh you know western civilization we understand it to be uh fighting for gender equality for example innocent right we think that we're very much forward thinkers and, um, you know, women's rights. But if you delve into pre-colonial history within Africa within the African context, you will see that there were women which were queens. There were women which were, which were warriors. Um, you understand that the whole tribal system gave women a power and a position which they don't have. They don't even have nowadays. So when we're talking about, you know, Western countries, you know, UK, Sweden, Uh, you know, being, being, being forward, uh, you know, on the contrary, on the contrary, it was those, it was those um, initial communities and tribes, which actually had it right. And that's what I mean by being able to go back to the basics. And we forget that, you know, we, we think, um, and again, it's, there's a certain arrogance in that. um, And those are the things which I'm looking at dismantling not just for the sake of it, but because I think those are stories which need to be told and we need to see those as, as examples of, of civilizations and communities that had it right.
1: Yes. that's So that's a great way to end this episode. Thank you so much for sharing your great insights. I'm looking forward to, as I said, collaborating more and just learning more from you and the work you're doing. Thank you very much, Claudia.
0: Innocent, thank you so much. And it's been a pleasure to chat to you.